Good morning. So glad that you're here to worship with us this morning. Uh, we've been in the book of Hebrews and we're going to continue in that this morning. And as you get into the book of Hebrews and as you your work your way through it, there's a couple times that the author uh, alludes to this picture of a lot of the Old Testament and a lot of the things that we look at in the Old Testament and a lot of things that are there. Like in chapter 10, he says, for since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. He talks about this a couple of times of things of the Old Testament being shadows of the true things that now come in Christ. And as we've been working our way through Hebrews, we've been looking at that and thinking about that idea, kind of our heading over everything that we've been looking at is Jesus is better than everything. And we see that repeated in the book of Hebrews. And I want you to just think about that image for a second, this idea of the shadows versus the real thing. When you look at the shadow of whatever it is, you walk outside like today on a bright sunny day, you could look out the window and you could see the shadow of the tree out there and you could get a general idea of what it looks like. But when you look at the shadow, what you're getting is a two dimensional image, right? In black and white, usually just shades of gray and that's it. And you're getting it flat on the ground and that's it. But you get a general idea of what it's like. But then when you turn and you look at that tree and you see it in its fullness, suddenly you see a lot more things than you were seeing before. Right? The shadow gives you an approximation, but it doesn't give you the fullness. And so what we're doing is we look at the book of Hebrews and what the author's doing is pointing us back to things that the way God revealed himself to us in the Old Testament, the way he was showing what he's like and who he is. And then he says, those are just shadows of the reality of the fullness. And then he starts to point you to Jesus and how he's the complete fullness and he's the fullness of all these promises. And so what we've been doing, and we talked about this a couple weeks ago, there was a warning of, of don't become dull of hearing and don't forget what you've heard and continue to grow and this exhortation to grow up into maturity. Remember, in the book of Hebrews, this is an author writing to a people that are struggling, right? The early church that's frustrated with what's going on around them, there's very hard things looking them in the face. And so he's reminding them the fullness that's in Christ to encourage them. But what he says is when you become dull of hearing and you kind of forget what you've learned, he says you need to go back and you need to learn the basic principles of the oracles of God. That's the picture, he says. When we're immature, we need to see those things. And what he means, I think, in a lot of ways is you need to see the big picture of the way God was moving and then see the fullness of how that comes to be in Jesus. Because he says the mature, those that are skilled in the word of righteousness. And we talked about how that points us to the fulfillment in Christ, the good news of what Jesus has done. We're only ever righteous by what Christ does for us, not what we do. It's his righteousness given to us by faith through grace. And so we looked at all those pictures. And so these shadows of the fullness and we want to see the fullness of who God is. And we see that perfectly in Jesus. We saw that the very first week in Hebrews, Hebrews 1, 2, and 3, they tell us that Jesus is the exact imprint of the very nature of God. When you see Jesus, you see God and you see what he's like. And so that's what we've been talking about and looking at. And so today we're going to continue to follow that pattern. And if you notice from the songs we sang and even the quotes that are in your bulletin and the things that are there, we're going to look at this idea of Jesus as our high priest. And in order to get that, to see the fullness of that, we need to think about the shadow that's in the Old Testament of what the priest was about and what it looked like and why it was there. Without seeing that, with missing part of that, we're not going to see the fullness of who Jesus is as our high priest. We need to see both of those. And so simply what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at those few verses I read to you just a couple minutes ago in Hebrews 2 and then the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5. And we're going to think for just a few minutes about this idea of the priesthood in the Old Testament. 
And you may not see that fully. We're not going to spend a lot of time on it, but just kind of big picture. What was going on? How was God working in that way? And then we're going to see how Jesus is the true and better, the great high priest, the perfect high priest. And by looking at those two together, you see more fully who Jesus is. And we've said that over and over. You see that pattern repeating in Hebrews. And then lastly, we're going to talk about the fact that we have a perfect high priest, why that is wonderful good news for us. And so let's pray together, and then we're going to jump in and look at those verses together in Hebrews. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is eternal and it is life-giving. And as you say right here in Hebrews, that it is uh, a living and active, and it, it reveals who we are and points us more fully to our need for you and how you meet that need. And so we pray this morning that as we open your word and we think on you as our great and perfect high priest, that you would do that, that you would show us through your spirit exactly how this applies to our life, to our heart, to our deepest needs, that you would just show us that this morning. What a great encouragement that it truly is that we have a perfect high priest. And so we pray that you would move freely in this place, that you would uh, reveal the truth to our hearts, you would apply it to our hearts and our minds, and we would leave here having seen you more clearly for who you are. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. And so big picture, high priest, just a quick overview, what that's about, then how Jesus is better, and then why this is good news. And so let's just start with this idea of the high priest in the Old Testament. And what happens oftentimes, and maybe this isn't you, maybe it is. If it's you, great. I'm glad you're here and we're talking about it today. But sometimes we can talk about things in the Old Testament and we can go back to some of those things and it's kind of fuzzy in your mind and you go, I don't really even get why that's there or what the deal is with that. People will ask that frequently. What was the deal with sacrifices and why blood and why animals and why this and all these things? And it's kind of fuzzy. And I think it's fuzzy for us a lot of times because we don't see the big picture of how God was moving and how it's one whole story of what he's unfolding and what he's doing. And when we start to kind of put it into that big picture of the way he's moving, suddenly it comes into focus and it makes a whole lot more sense. And so I want to do that real briefly just with this idea of the high priest and the temple system and what's going on there. Let me remind you, the book of Hebrews is written to the early church. They're coming to grips with what it means that Jesus is the Messiah and the Savior what it means to put their trust fully in him, that he truly is the completion of all God's promises. A lot of scholars believe, we can't say this for certain, but a lot believe that Hebrews is written before temple worship ceases. If you don't know your history around the Bible and all that goes with it, in 70 AD there would be a great war going on between the Jews and the Romans, and the Romans would destroy the temple completely, and temple worship would cease. But up until that point, it was still going on. And so there's an overlap between the resurrection of Jesus uh, right around 30 A.D. and 70 A.D. where Jesus is, is risen Savior. The gospel is going out. We're proclaiming who he is. And temple worship is still going on. And it's almost like these two things. Here's the shadows and the symbols that point to Jesus. And they're going on alongside with the proclamation of who Jesus is. And so for the early church, the Hebrews here that we're writing to, that he's, he's talking to in this letter, there's a very real, well, how does this work and how does this go together? And so a lot of scholars believe because they talk in present tense here in Hebrews about temple worship that it's still going on. And so you can see how there's a lot of questions that come up with how they go. That's why the author's going to spend a lot of time pointing you to why Jesus is your true and better high priest. That you don't need this high priest over here in the temple, you need Jesus. 
And so that's the picture we're looking at. And if we step right into that and we don't have the cultural mindset that they do, it can be very difficult to get to that. It's kind of like watching a movie and walking in right in the middle of it. And then you're trying to make sense of what's happening and why this character and why is this going on. And so I want us just to real briefly hit on big picture of the temple system, what God was doing. And so we could say this, if we go back to Genesis 1 and 2, God created man to be in relationship with him, unfettered, complete access, right there walking with God, and man chose to sin or rebel. We say all the time here, sin is choosing to ignore God and the world that he created. That's what man did. And in doing so, put a rift between a holy and perfect just God and a sinful broken people. We can't walk straight in to have unfettered access to the perfect holy God of the universe because of our sin. And so God right there at the beginning promises to send a savior. Genesis 3, you get the very first promise of Jesus. That there's a man going to come through Eve's seed that's going to crush the serpent, Satan and evil and death and sin. And all of it's right there. And so what you get is all of scripture is unfolding God's plan. The Old Testament is we're looking ahead to the Savior coming, right? We're moving through history looking ahead. The New Testament is the Savior comes, and then we're describing how he meets all the promises that were talked about in the Old Testament. And so really, when we say this, I jokingly say all the time, if you're not sure what the answer is, the answer is Jesus. That's true. The whole Bible is about Jesus. From the very beginning, there's a promise that Jesus is coming, and then it's all looking ahead to him. Then he comes, and then it's explaining what he's done. And so when you go back to the Old Testament, you have a sinful, broken people that are broken off from God that can't come directly to them. And so God makes a way that he can relate to them. He can talk to them. Hebrews 1 talks about it. He's spoken it many times in many ways through prophets. And he spoke to different people and he spoke to them and he told them about what he's like. And he gave us his law. You can go read about that in Exodus 20. God gives the Ten Commandments and he tells what he's like and how to come to him and how to live in the world that he created. And in doing so, when he gives us the law, there's a couple things he's doing. One, he's telling us how to live. You think about it, if God created all things, he knows how this world works best. right? And so he gives you some basic principles, some basic rules that this is how my world works. And so he's doing that in the Ten Commandments. He's a gracious, loving God. Here's how it works. But then also he's doing that to constrain evil. We're sinful people. We want to ignore him. It kind of puts up guardrails. Do this and things will work better. But there's also another thing God's doing in giving us the law, the Ten Commandments. We're looking ahead to the Savior. He's not come yet. We're anticipating it. Here's the law. He's showing you that you need a Savior. The law given to us as it is, when we read it and when we see it and when we look at it, we go, wait a second, I haven't done that. You're not supposed to lie. You're not supposed to covet your neighbor's stuff. You're not supposed to steal. You can imagine the first time they heard the Ten Commandments, everybody goes, oh, no. Got me. Right. And at least a couple of them for sure. Right. And you're hearing them and oh no, that's, and so God graciously gives us the law to say that you need a savior because you haven't done this. This is what I require and you have not done this and you're in trouble. And so that's part of why he gives us the law. But then he also being perfectly gracious and loving, he gives us the temple as well, right? Immediately after he gives the law, he starts to talk to the people about you're going to be my people and you're going to keep my law and I'm going to be your God and this is what it's going to look like. And they go through a whole ceremony, and then right after that, God starts giving them the plan for the temple, the tabernacle. 
And he starts to tell them, now this is how you're going to approach me when you blow it. Because you've all blown it. And so God provides a way where he can be near to his people despite their sin. He is so loving and so gracious. The Savior hasn't come yet to completely bridge this gap, but I still want to be near you. And so he gives them a way to approach him. And he appoints priests to be on behalf of the people. And look at what it says here in chapter 5 of verse 1. He talks about this. And so this is the reality of all the people that are hearing this know this. This is still going on. They've grown up with this. This system goes on for 2,000 plus years. And so they know it. But we can miss that today because we don't have, none of us has ever seen temple worship. None of us has ever gone and seen sacrifices and all these things. But look at what he says in chapter 5 and verse 1. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. And so God is teaching a broken, sinful people that this is how you approach a holy and perfect God. I'm oversimplifying this greatly, but we're going to say it this way. Temple worship was you came up to the temple and you brought your sacrifice for sins you committed. You laid your hands on the animal and you said, I deserve to die for my sins. But God is graciously allowing me to have this animal take my place. And then they would slit its throat and drain the blood and do this whole ceremony and all these things. And you were brought to the reality so clearly in very vivid sounds and smells and pictures right in front of you that you are a sinner and you deserve to die because of your sin. It's a pretty serious picture. But I want you to see that that is wrapped in God's grace. God is graciously showing you that you're a sinner and this is how a holy God, how you approach a holy God. You don't just stroll up haphazardly. And so this went on every day for years and years, for thousands of years. And they would have a catch all at the end of the year, what they called the day of the atonement, where the high priest would go in and make one sacrifice to kind of cover everything that had been missed. But there was a problem on all of this. It was a great picture that's teaching what God's like. But it was incomplete and it was imperfect. Look at chapter 5, verse 2. It's talking about this high priest that does this on our behalf. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward. That's us, if you're unaware of that. We're the ignorant and the wayward. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. You hear what he's saying? The high priest would go in on our behalf and do this, but he had to make sacrifices for himself because he too is a sinner. He too is beset with weakness. He's not perfect. He's got all these same issues that we have. And so you have this system going on and God's teaching and he's showing. And by the way, he calls a certain people to do this. This is within Israel, but he sets them up in the center of the known world so that the world would begin to see what God's like, how you approach a holy and perfect God. And so this would go on and on, and you would see this for 2,000 plus years. And then Jesus would come. And I want us to think what he shows us here about why Jesus is the true and better high priest. We need just that snapshot, that shadow, to now see the fullness of what comes in Christ. And so go back to the end of chapter 2. We finished up almost chapter 2 last week. We spent a lot of time talking about how Jesus is our perfect brother our brother, and that he comes in and he shares in the same humanity that we have. 
He's, he's fully God, but he's also fully man. And so we get to verse 17, and it talks about made like his brothers. It's talking about Jesus. We're picking up where we were last week. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is also able to help those who are being tempted. But then go to chapter four, the end of four, starting in verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens. Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession for we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness with our weaknesses but one who has in every respect been tempted as we are yet without sin let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need and so i want us just to think about why jesus is the better the true the perfect high priest and putting those two things side by side, you get this picture of the high priest that's uh, kind of put into place by God, by, that's a man that's beset with weakness, and then you compare him to Jesus and what he tells you. And the first thing I want us to consider is what he says, that the, the high priest that is set there before God in the Old Testament is one that is beset with weakness. He is a sinful man that has to make sacrifices on, our own, on his own, And then you compare him to Jesus and he says, Jesus is your faithful and high priest. He's been tempted in every way yet without sin. It's a pretty big difference. One is sinful and broken man and one is the perfect God man who is sinless. And so he says that he's able to to come and to uh, do perfectly as the high priest that he can uh, uh, sympathize with us in our weakness. And so you see this picture that's there. And I want us to think about the two the differences, right? When the high priest in the Old Testament comes, he's coming to make uh, sacrifices on your behalf that you bring for sins that you've committed, sins that you've already committed. And so we get into these big Bible words, and oftentimes we talk about the Old Testament high priest being expiation for sins. I don't want your eyes to glaze over and you go, oh no, what in the world is he talking? Expiation just means making a back payment for what's already happened. Right? It's kind of like, put it in these terms, uh, you're late on your rent. Right? Let's say your rent's $500 and you owe your rent on the first of the month and it's now the 25th of the month and you haven't paid. You've got to get your money together and go in and beg for forgiveness from your, from your landlord and you give them your money and then it takes care of it. But what happens five days later? It's, it's due again. Yeah. Right? That's the way the Old Testament priest, you would go and you'd make sacrifice and then you'd walk off and you'd stub your toe and you'd swear under your breath, and it's like, "Uh uh-oh, i got to go back, right? This is going to happen over and over and over again and over again. And he couldn't make do away with it. The high priest in the Old Testament was just kind of in the rear paying for the back taxes, right? Like what you needed to pay before, catching you up as it were. And so it was a continual thing that went over and over. And he pays, and so he's continually paying it. But then Jesus comes and it says he's the perfect high priest, and there's something very different here. Look at what it says at the end there in verse 17 of chapter 2. He's the faithful and merciful high priest in the servants of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. What does that mean? Expiation, propitiation, all these words. So we go, what? Propitiation means he's taking care of all of it. 
He's turning God's wrath against our sin to be favorable towards us because he's going to do all of it because he's the perfect and sinless high priest. Go back to your late on your, your rent. Old Testament, you scrape together your money and he comes in and he gives it on behalf and begs for forgiveness. New Testament, Jesus walks in to your landlord and says, uh, my tenant, my guy here is late on his rent and I want to pick up his bill. And he goes, well, he owes $500. And he goes, yeah, how much for the whole building? I'm going to take care of all of it right now. And then he won't owe rent anymore. Right? He says, I'm going to do all of it. Because he's the perfect and faithful, sinless high priest. And he offers a perfect sacrifice, which will be himself. I'm not going to go into that today because that comes up later in Hebrews. The whole temple system, the high priest, the sacrifice, the temple itself, all of it points us to Jesus. He's going to do every bit of it. And so you see this picture that he comes in and he's the perfect high priest in every way. He doesn't do expiation. He doesn't just make up back sins. He says, I take care of all of it. And so Jesus is significantly better, right? He is our savior. He does what we could never do for us. He says, I will take care of all of it. And I will take your place and I will become your intermediary between you and God. God will now look at you and only see Jesus. That's the beautiful picture of the gospel. But there's something far greater than just that. As wonderful as our salvation, all of that is just practically day to day in how we operate and how we see Christ in our life. There's something more to it than just that. So look at what he says there in verse 18. For because he himself, sorry, chapter 2, verse 18. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Or then in verse 15 of chapter 4. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. And I want you just to think about this picture. right? When we think of Jesus sympathizing with us and he's the perfect high priest versus the, the high priest in the Old Testament that was beset with weakness. And it says he's not a sinner, and so he can sympathize with us. And it says the other guy in the Old Testament, the priests that would come over and over, they were a sinner. And in my mind, as I read that and I thought about that that week, I go back to this and I go, but yet yeah, it seems to me almost that the Old Testament high priest can sympathize better because he's as lost as I am. And he's a mess. He's got his own sins to deal with. He would know. But the truth is, I want you to think about this picture. There's a couple ways you can look at it with Jesus. Because he's sinless, I want you to think about uh, sympathizing with someone. Does your sin help or hurt in that process? You ever thought about that? Someone you know goes through something horrible and you go sit with them at the hospital. And you hurt because they hurt because they're your friend and you love them and you care about them and you're present with them and you're walking with them through that. But you know what happens after a while because I'm sinful? I'm self-centered and I'm selfish. I start to go, I need to get home. Right? I'm not making light of that, but that's, that's the truth of my own heart. I got other things I need to do. I can't stay here all day. And I start to selfishly think about what I need to do versus being present with them. In Jesus, we see the perfect high priest who comes and walks among us. And he's present with everybody because he's not selfish and he's not self-centered and he has no sin. And so when you watch Jesus walk on the earth, it's never, oh, I got to get on to something else. I don't have time for you. He's completely present, feeling everything with every person that he comes in contact with. 
fully. Think of what your life would be like. When Jesus comes, if you were like that, and you feel the pain of every single person you're coming into contact with fully. It's hard enough dealing with your own stuff, let alone feeling fully every person you come into contact with. And so everywhere Jesus went, you see that. He was a man of sorrows. He's weeping and he's seeing because he sees the effect of sin on everyone at every moment. And he's feeling all of it. But not only that, it says that he resisted temptation. He never once gave in. And I want you to think about the picture that's there. When I deal with temptation in my life as a sinner, I often fail. I often give in to temptation and just kind of throw my hands up and I don't see it all the way through. And so uh, let's say somebody you know is talking about some friend of yours and they're going on and on about how great they are and they've really, really wronged you. What wants to happen in your, right? You go, oh, hold on just a second. You don't know that guy the way I know him and you want to make sure they know all that you know, right? By the way, that's not walking by the Spirit because this tells us if we walk by the Spirit, we're not going to do that. Right. So sinfully, I want to put them down to make myself feel better when I don't. It's hard, is it not? They're carrying on about how great this person is and they've really wronged you. Right. It's hard, isn't it? To bury that and go, I'm not going to say anything. Or then you do it maybe once or then twice. And then finally, the third time, you're like, I just got to tell you this. You need to hear this. Right. And we give in. The picture we see of Jesus, every temptation he faces his entire life, all the time, everywhere he goes, he never gives in to sin. You know how much harder that is than what you and I do when we give in to sin often? We often don't see that. It says he was tempted in every way yet without sin. So you have a faithful high priest that knows all that you're going through. Do you see how that works? Where you and I check out and go, I'm not going to go, I can't do that. Jesus kept holding on and kept holding on and not giving in to temptation. So not only does he know what you're going through and the temptations you're going through, he knows it to the fullest because he never gave in to it. Ever. Do you see the difference? Be like if we decide we're going to, Brantley and I say, let's go out and see how far we can run. Let's go see how far we can run. We're just going to go as far as we can. And uh, if I were to do that, I could probably go about three miles and then I'd be miserable. But if I physically had to push and go as far as I possibly physically can, just keep moving, let's say I could make 20 miles if I just kept going and kept going. Now, the truth is, if I went out and we tried that, I'd stop about mile three and go, man, I'm exhausted. I'm done. Right. But I would never see how far I could have gone because I just give up. Right. I wouldn't know what it's like to push through mile five or mile 10 or mile 15, or 16, or 17, yet Jesus does because he never gave in to temptation, ever. And so I want you to think about what that means as Jesus being our true and perfect and better high priest. When we tap out and we go, I can't do that, Jesus went through that. Not only does he know what you've gone through, he's gone through it completely. He knows the temptations you deal with plus more. Do you see that? No matter where you go, no matter how far you hold out, no matter how much you resist temptation, Jesus has been there. He knows what that's like. He's your perfect high priest because he's been through all of it. But there's a second part of that that makes me go, yeah, but he didn't sin. 
Right? He's the perfect sinless high priest, so he doesn't know what my guilt and my shame are like when I blow it. Yeah, he can, he can sympathize when I get pushed to the limit in those things because he never sinned. But what about in my sin when I blow it? And you go, but he doesn't know that because he's sinless. But yes, he does. Look at chapter 5, verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. And although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. You know what that's talking about? Jesus offered up prayers and supplications and loud cries and tears. So I'm at the Garden of Gethsemane and then on the cross. You know what Jesus cries out in the Garden of Gethsemane? Father, if there's another way for this to happen, I would like to know it now. Right? It says he was heard. Right? God heard him. And then Jesus says, but not my will, your will. Right? He heard him and he got the answer that, no, this is the way. This is the way it has to happen. And so Jesus is then made perfect through his suffering. What happens on the cross? He, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin on our behalf, that we would become the righteousness of God in him. He's sinless. He's perfect. He's resisted every time, and he goes to the cross, and he becomes sin, and it's not his own sin, it's mine. And it's yours. And he knows it completely. He knows your own sin more than you know it. Because he knows what it costs. He knows the wrath that it deserves in full. So not only does he know what it's like to be tempted and resist to the end, he knows what it's like to to now have the shame and the guilt and the fullness and to pay for it completely and totally. And so when he tells you we have a high priest that is perfect and he's without sin and that he can sympathize in your weakness and where you are, he knows it. There's not a single point or area that he doesn't know. That he sees the fullness of all of it. And so when we think about that picture that is there. There is no part of your struggle in this life. The temptations. The sins that are presented. The guilt and the shame and the frustration when you blow it. And all those things that Jesus doesn't know. Start to see why he says you have a perfect high priest. Not one who's beset with his own weaknesses that's worried about his own stuff. One that knows all of you completely and totally. And so I want you just to think about why that is wonderful good news. We serve a God who is near, who is intimately involved, who knows all of your everything. And he's felt it. He's gone through it. You are never alone where he doesn't know what you're going through. Ever. I mentioned this last week. And we've talked about it a couple times as we're walking through Hebrews. Christianity is the only worldview that even comes close to touching this. 
that God himself would lower himself and come and walk through all of this with you. And not only that, would pay for all of it, would take your sin, would pay it to the fullest, give you his righteousness through what he does for you, and then say, draw near, I know every bit of it. But you see that. Chapter 4, verse 16, let us then draw with confidence near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and grace to help in the time of need. Jesus does all that for you, and then his, his word to you is, so come to me. You come to me at any time with anything, and I'm there. With grace and mercy because of what I've done for you. When we see that picture of what we have in our high priest, it far supersedes anything. There's nothing that can touch that. We need a high priest. We know we need a high priest. And there he is saying, I know all of it and I've got you. So what a beautiful, glorious picture of what we have in Christ. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what it teaches us. We thank you for the fullness of the beauty and majesty and glory of who Christ is and what he's done for us. That you know everything that we deal with. Everything that we go through, everything that we're struggling with, that you've been there when you've walked through it with us, that you've paid for our sin, that you now give us your grace through your sacrifice. And we can only say thank you. I pray the day that we would leave here having seen that more clearly, that we would go forth knowing that we have a faithful and perfect high priest that we can look to in any and all things. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.